0: You're listening to episode 8 of the Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, Arun Dainandhan, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Charles Blazier and Kyle Grant. This week, we're talking about how life originated, artificial life forms, what's worth conserving, and the possibility of life on other planets. So this week, we are talking about the origin of life on Earth, you know, no small task, and I'll start a little bit with the, the history of, of the origin of, of life and, and kind of how we've come to, uh, to look at the, the, the origin of life as well as study what may have been the early forms of, um, of organic life on our planet. So while Darwin and Wallace's theory of evolution explains the vast diversity of species we see today, their theory doesn't necessarily offer an explanation as to how life came to be on our planet about 3.2 billion years ago. We know from looking at living species today that certain properties of life are maintained and thus have been the results of these processes of natural selection, so adjusting and balancing the internal environment, which we call homeostasis, the ability to maintain discrete parts known as structural organization, the ability to control chemical reactions within the internal environment known as metabolism, growth and reproduction, and the ability to actively respond to environmental cues. Our most basal ancestor, so the one that underlies the development of all living organisms present today, is what's known as our last universal common ancestor, or LUCA. The LUCA is not a single organism, but rather it's an entire population of organisms beyond which we cannot see based on our current methods of tracing evolutionarily, evolutionary relatedness. To see beyond our last universal common ancestor, biologists work with chemists, geologists, atmospheric scientists, uh, in order, and a whole host of other scientists, in order to understand how life emerged on our early planet. The atmosphere of early Earth lacked oxygen, and so ultraviolet light, lightning, cosmic rays, volcanic eruptions, and the heat from our planet's core may have served as sources of energy, which converted gases in our atmosphere and extraterrestrial particles, which arrive on comets, into a whole range of molecules that became the basis for early life. This early mixture of elements and energy lends credence to the idea of a prebiotic soup or a pool of molecules that existed in a liquid form before life arose, that over time would have grown richer and more diverse in both living and non living matter. In the 1950s, Stanley Miller and Harold Urey tested this hypothesis by simulating these conditions within their lab. Through their experiments, the scientists were able to produce a number of the basic elements needed for life, but they were unable to describe the mechanism behind the assembly of these components into higher-ordered structures. This remained the case until Sidney Fox in 1977 found that by mixing these components, which were called amino acids, before adding them to boiling water, created bonds similar to those found in modern-day proteins. The issues of heritability and replication of these molecules was later addressed by Sol Spiegelman and Manfred Sumper in the 70s and later by Thomas Cech and Sidney Altman in the 80s, showing that single-stranded higher-ordered structures derived from the molecules that Miller and Urey had found, known as RNA, could replicate on their own by using itself as a template, and the natural selection then occurred on these copies. In the presence of several different RNA templates and chemical substrates, a large variation of early RNA life was possible, highlighting a period in Earth's history that we call the RNA world. The next jump occurred in the shift from an RNA-driven world to a world dominated by DNA. Scientists hypothesized that evolution selected for the double-stranded DNA over the single-stranded RNA over time, as DNA is chemically more stable than RNA, and has proofreading and repair mechanisms which lower the mutation rates, allowing for longer genes with more genetic information to be stored. Furthermore, DNA allowed for specialization within the cells, where element-rich DNA could be used for genetics data storage, while the RNA could be used uh, for the role of housekeeper within the structures that we now call the cell. The formation of membrane-bound cells is in itself pretty intriguing because it highlights the role of early cooperation amongst early life forms. The HyperCycle model proposed that as early elements began to rely on each other to gather more substrates, their rate of replication became increasingly dependent on one another. This cooperation allowed the elements to persist longer than those that were on their own, creating a differential success that natural selection was able to act on, favoring the replication of all required partners. These early elements also produced fatty acids, which became the the cell membrane of the protocell. While the cell membrane posed additional challenges, such as how nutrients could actually be brought into the cell and and how waste could be excreted out of the cell, it also allowed for a number of benefits. So the internal microenvironment of the cell was now controlled. Uh, There was a chemical gradient that was created across the membrane, which allowed for some chemicals uh, to stay inside and to, to actually enter into the cell while Others were prevented from entering, Uh, there was a defense against predatory replicators, and the partitioning of various functions uh, within the cell allowed it to operate more and more efficiently. As these cells became increasingly productive, they began to grow in size, leading to an even split into the two parts, into what we now call the two daughter cells. During early cell evolution, horizontal gene transfer, so as opposed to vertical genes transfer, which is seen between a parent and an offspring, led to more complex cellular organisms forming, owing largely to the fact that many cell functions were modular in nature. As cells became more and more complex in structure and function, then modularity would have actually decreased as specialization increased, leading to the less important role of horizontal gene transfer in these more complex organisms as we see today. This, however, is not the case for for bacteria, where horizontal gene transfer makes up a significant portion of the genetic variability that we see within these populations. Now, this is important because we can conclude that identifying a central uh, or rather a specific ancestral species becomes impossible as our definition of a species completely breaks down at this level. And we rely on modern day genomic analysis to identify the minimum gene set required for the functions of all life on Earth to continue. And so for from moving from, from our, our idea of the origin of life and how we, we started to study and create the, the, the prebiotic soup that was required for life, I, I chose a, a paper this, um, this week called The Diversity and Survival of Artificial Life Forms Under Sedimentation and Random Motion by Nicholas Glade and his colleagues. And this was published in 2017 in Theory of Biosciences, I believe. Yes. So... the uh, the the idea of this paper was to look at how artificial self-maintained spatial structures also known as as kind of this analog for cells in in a computer can emerge and how cellular automata are often used to represent uh, these molecules and living organisms so within an artificial system so in a computer versus a natural living system there's a number of differences In a natural system, there's a lot of diversity, a lot of interactions taking place. The the organisms have very limited lifetimes, you know, we don't live forever. And there is a certain directional dependence, especially at the frontiers and the interfaces um, in these natural systems. Now, what's interesting is that these, these kind of what they call automata, or essentially these precursors to life, and can form from these disordered systems, and that they can self-organize as well as replicate by themselves. And this would happen at places called composomes, which are known as self-assembled hyperstructures. I know it sounds really fancy, but essentially it's, it's these structures where function and form um, are tightly linked, And we can see this kind of interface existing at places like deep sea hydrothermal vents, in mud pools, such as those that you can find at Yellowstone National Park, um, and a number of other places in the world. Now, an important factor that isn't always looked into in these computer simulation models is the importance of gravity, which causes sedimentation of dead matter and leads to higher energy forming at the bottom and lower energy, like a lower energy region at the top of this gradient. We've seen diversity developing at the bottom and diffusing upward where they can persist longer in some of these deep water systems. Um, But there's an interesting interface uh, or rather a boundary where this interface occurs because in this area where there's a, you know, at the top where there's a lot of diversity that's diffusing and not a lot of predation and compared to the bottom where there's a lot of diversity being created but also a lot of predation, this boundary layer essentially allows for some organisms to escape and make it to the kind of safe region up on top and others to to die and decompose and become part of the the pool of energy from which new organisms can can spring forth so what these these scientists wanted to look at was whether directional fields such as gravity can counteract the disorder created by the random motion of organisms because in a in a contained environment the organisms will just bounce around you know, on just completely randomly, and this is known as Brownian motion. Um, however, when you add something like gravity, as we mentioned earlier, the this idea of the the energy being pushed down as it you know as these organisms dying die creating this this almost a sludge at the bottom um, would allow for potentially a scenario where life can be supported. And so the other idea was that this this directionality um in this in this this field like in gravity would lead to the emergence of regions within the medium where there's different properties which in the end favor the emergence and survival of living organisms so the way they did this is by looking at a game of life model with with a few additions so the game of life is a computer simulation model of life itself um it it follows a, a very set number of rules and essentially it's it's done on a two-dimensional grid where kind of um Pixels will, will be born and, and die and, um, and and these can be kind of played with and, and different sources of variation can be added to the system to see how they would react. So the two additions to this Game of Life model was sedimentation, so gravity, as well as thermal agitation, which was that random movement, that Brownian motion within the system. The difference, though, is that thermal agitation is essentially the addition of energy into a system. So, for example, from sunlight, and this energy has to go somewhere and so the 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 idea of using thermal agitation was to say okay well you know what is influencing this random motion amongst these these kind of artificial organisms and this can, this can have a have an analog with the directionality that we see in these organisms so by directionality i mean this almost path dependence or inertia within organisms you know Moving forward, so if you know if I, if I were to move forward, I would be more likely to move forward than I would be to move backwards. But this can occur in a number of different um, different axes. Uh, within the cells themselves, these automata are either alive or dead. There's no in between, and these can form some higher ordered structures. So the the way this works is when cells come into contact with each other, one of two things can happen. They can either survive, which will which will lead to these these kind of creatures being formed, or they can die and then dissipate to the bottom through the sedimentation process that they added, leading to an, an energy pool at the bottom. So when they, when they do come together and form some of these unique creatures, the scientists looked at about 20 of the most interesting or most occurring creatures that existed. And they have a bunch of really cool names like Mango and Snake. Um... And and then followed the the kind of population dynamics of these fake organisms as if they were a real organism living in a in a two dimensional landscape. What they found was that there indeed was a highly active sludge forming at the bottom where there was a very fast turnover and generation of new creatures. Um, and this kind of comparison, this is an interesting comparison to the standard game of life model, where if you give the the, the model enough time. What ends up happening is all species kind of wipe themselves out. And because there's no area for this fast turnover to occur, you see essentially a, a mass extinction occurring. So this is this might be an analog to some other planets, and that's something we can talk about a little bit later. Um, so with this with this sludge forming, there was this creation of these microcosms as well, where these different layers Um, were forming due to the addition of those two components, as I mentioned, gravity and and thermal agitation. What this means is there might have been certain pockets within this two-dimensional landscape where life just persisted in almost a circular manner, never going extinct, but not necessarily um, generating new life either, or, or new life forms, new creatures. Uh, so the, 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 important thing here is that they measured the characteristics of those creatures and, and these, these microcosms uh, using things like creature density, birth rate, species richness, and species abundance. And, um, and, and so what they essentially did was have this computer simulation model uh, generate these, this, these kind of creatures, and then look at what, what allows for, or rather whether or not that sedimentation and the, uh, in, the input of energy into the system allowed for these species to both be be kind of formed from a from an active sludge and also persist through time. There's a number of things I really liked about this paper. Uh, one of my absolute favorite things, and I, and I, you know, it, it seems so intuitive when when I, when you read this, but you know, it's not necessarily something that to me is immediately obvious. But it's that they considered the environment as a living being in their simulation. So when they when they had to actually look at this two-dimensional landscape and decide how do you differentiate both these living and non-living areas, they actually realized that the non-living areas were just as living as living areas in that there was still energy and matter being kind of predated upon by organisms. So when when energy left that two-dimensional landscape, it was being it was as if it was being consumed by the organisms. But when an organism died, it was as if the landscape was then consuming that organism too. So there's, there's a, a very interesting, almost spiritual question that we can talk about a little bit later um, in the way that they, they looked at the, the landscape. Another thing I thought was really cool was that the, the discussion portion of the paper goes into the subjective nature of quantifying biodiversity, as well as origin of, of all species. And it pulls in concepts from chemistry and physics and, and even Dawkins' biomorph uh, models, which I thought was very, very interesting, especially when the authors go into some of the more more um, aesthetic elements of, of biodiversity, which sometimes we, we tend to ignore as as scientists. Now that's not to say there weren't a couple of things that I found they could have done better. So one, I I thought the 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 fact that there was no genetic evolution taking place within these creatures because these creatures had no genome um, was a little bit was a little, little sad because I thought it'd be really interesting to see what would happen if those creatures in fact could breed um, and and create these new forms like in Dawkins' biomorph model. Um, also these species couldn't go extinct like fully extinct so you could get the same species being generated again from that sludge now as we know the the likelihood of, a, of the same species occurring twice within a within um you know a historic time is essentially impossible um but um but in this model you could get the same creatures being generated over and over again um i thought personally that that and this is more of a, an issue with the model being in two dimensions. That would be more interesting to see what would happen in three-dimensional space, as well as uh, a multi-dimensional space, such as adding things like behavior and physiology, and, and all of these other kind of components that we see in the living world. Because, you know, how these these they, they mentioned that these species interact, but how these species interact could be very very interesting to to look at and from a from a computer simulation model. Um, and also, I thought that that. You know, because they were using a limited number of creatures over a very large number of iterations of this computer simulation, um, you know, it, obviously it, it was it was done because it makes it easier to analyze the population dynamics. But I do have my questions as to whether that's necessarily representative of real systems out there. And so, so from there, actually, I'd be very curious to see what what you guys um, what you guys think in, in terms of the representativeness of this being in a real system. I mean, can we use artificial life, these computer simulation models, to theorize on living systems? Um, What assumptions are we actually making? Can we truly understand living beings such as ourselves through these simulations, or are we biased in the way we're making our own creations? So for example, is this a universal truth? Is this something that can be applied to other planets? Can it be applied to another universe? Um, Or are we, you know, when we're designing these models, are we making the assumption that our type of life is the only life that, that can exist? So I was—I'd be really curious to see what uh, what your guys' thoughts are, both on the paper, but also on this this kind of larger question of of relevance.
1: Well, if I may start, I remember in elementary school, um, you know, we we thought life was a game at that time. You know, life was really simple. Uh, but now, seeing the worst game of life and reading this paper, and um, this is much more complicated than what life was like when we were a bit younger. So, uh, it's a bit of a challenge for me to. To picture this whole uh, game of life and use the word game or toy, even toy model, as they've been using that article. Uh, just because there's so much information that has to be incorporated in such a model to have it remotely similar to what is actually happening in the, on the planet. So, to answer your question, Arun, I mean, this paper was very interesting, it was a good read for sure. But can we use that to apply it to our planet or to even try to apply it to different planets? That's a tough question just because even if they added some parameters like sedimentation and um, thermal agitation is that enough to actually portray everything that's happening that, that led to the development of species? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think so. Um, it is really interesting again from a theoretical perspective to have an idea of what are the, the main aspects that will lead to to like broader theories but as they've been calling it, it's a toy model. So what is the like what is the use of a toy model if it's not only to understand the m- most important factors, but like, can we really base, I don't know, actual biological concepts on these very few factors that have been used? Just like the small number of creatures that have been used or know, there's lots of things you said are missing the paper because we're talking about a computer model in two dimensions that could have been done in 1995. So my question now is, how relevant is this to actual biological concepts?
2: Yeah, I I totally agree with uh, Charlie. I think um, the relevance is is kind of an open question here. Like like we said, it's it's pretty simplistic. Uh, I do think it's interesting that their model is looking at how um, you know we're looking at how organization can occur, but absent of genetic evolution, which is something that yeah you know, certainly in biology you you don't really see very often um but again i think it would have been interesting to see um see them in- include that component for later later steps in the um the organization that they were simulating um so so yeah um yeah i mean as a model that that's universal i don't i don't i don't know i'm not uh i don't know can we ever like truly say that a model is universal uh, to start with, but uh, in this case, I think y- you certainly need a component of genetic evolution. Otherwise, uh, I think you're really you're really lacking.
1: I mean, at the same time, I'm looking at, you know, the, they've been basing this model on a previous model that was extremely simple, you know? <laughs> Conway's uh, Game of Life model. So by adding these few parameters, um, yes, we, we are still lacking a lot to approach ourselves from reality. But it is getting pretty much closer than if we hadn't included these things, you know, just by biodiversity, vita- vitality, and survival, as an example. Do you think there's anything else that could have been added with, uh, I mean, yeah, any, like, actual biological concept that could have been added besides the vitality, survival, and um, um, that other one I just said and I forgot, but Essentially, yeah, do you think there's other concepts that that could have been added to this model to make it a bit closer to reality?
2: Yeah, I think you could have, uh, um, if they integrated natural selection into this, then you can kind of see how, you know, we can go from those simple simple organisms that they generated into, you know, full complexity. Um, I think that would have been interesting to include.
1: And do we think that natural selection could be observed in the model they have right now just by having, because there was some sort of rules, you know, that were also in the the initial um, game of life model um, that living cells that were surrounded by two or three other living cells survive, but otherwise they die. So could we use that as and argue that this would be a form of natural selection?
2: Yeah, I, I think almost. If you look at it, there's definitely an element of differential um, success, but... Uh, I think the component that's missing is that cross generational um, effect that and, and, uh, heritability that you would see in natural selection.
0: Right. I think the issue of heritability is a, is a huge one because there's, there's almost a sense of, of buffering. You know, the way I see it is that this model, it does include natural selection, but in a very, very crude manner. So, the way you know the way we see these pixels essentially on this on this grid when they bump into each other it's like a game of tetris you know um or actually it's like a game of uh what's it snake the snake where like bumps in its own tail kind of thing and dies you know if it if it bumps into the um you know if it bumps into another creature those points might have a there's a probability that's a sign it'll either join or it'll die And so it's kind of using this as a very, very crude form of, you know, imagine two populations, they come into contact and one persists and the other one does not, or they both kind of intermingle. But what will be interesting is if you looked at this heritability component and you could see the splitting within these groups, because these groups are essentially, they're, they're not, they're unchanging on 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 an individual level, but also they're they're also unchanging as a group. So let's say a creature's formed. Well, these creatures can no longer form, you know, these populations of creatures. There's nothing, you know, it, it, I think what will be interesting is to add some form of form of probability to say, okay, well, if you encounter a creature that is like yourself, you know, you have X amount of probability of staying with them and X amount of probability of not. You know, this could be an interesting way to incorporate ideas of at the very least – like sexual selection and mating um you know perhaps something to do with the position of the pixels and and maybe you know if, if your pixels form this kind of shape versus that kind of shape maybe you know one is favored um and this is a little bit like dawkins biomorph model where there's this uh, there's this website i think it's called emergent emergentlife.com essentially it's this biomorph model but it's online and the way it works is you know you have this this one organism and these sliders associated with various random components of its, of its morphology, of the way it looks. And you can change that manually as your starting creature. And once, it, once you're happy with that, it'll automatically generate something like nine other possible combinations of this based on, or rather permutations of this based on your original number. And then when you click one of those, right, as if you're selecting for it, well, now that becomes the central organism and it generates another nine around that. And so you can keep clicking, 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 and choosing, you know, these, these possible nine permutations. And sometimes it'll show a permutation it won't let you click it because it shows, you know, this is not actually realistic. You know, this, you know, th- this variation would have gone extinct or rather wouldn't be able to reproduce. There's some issue with it. Um, it's just not feasible. And, and, and you can see these changes, how this thing morphs. Um, there's been a number of issues you know, brought forward about this type of model. However, the the heritability aspect is still something I think would be very interesting to be included into this kind of computer simulation model because it would make select at least some forms of natural selection better represented within this this model. And I don't know. I, I think maybe there's some other other cases of selection that could be included too. Maybe you guys have some some ideas as to uh, you know other other ways to incorporate this.
2: Yeah. So uh, you can in- also include mutation, right? So um that would give sort of a distribution of characteristics um so you have a heritable characteristic but then when it's inherited there's you know probability that um the characteristic will be slightly different um that that's another aspect you could include absolutely yes. i mean the
1: the sorry Charlie. Yeah, i mean no i was just going to agree with kyle that adding mutation and natural selection would already you know and inheritability as well which is already correct for like lots of of things that we do not know about this model, if it would be representative. So, yeah, definitely. I
0: mean, one thing I was thinking is, imagine if we were to add all the possible things that I could. I mean, when we look at, again, this this form of natural selection, this very crude natural selection, one could imagine that, you know, things like like behavior uh, are ways to almost buffer that, the way we interact. So our phenotype and the way we, we can almost, our phenotypic plasticity, the way we can change our our the way we express ourselves you know, or rather manifest in the world one could imagine that that that's a way to kind of buffer these changes so i think maybe even a way to, to to buffer that and you know perhaps that can be included in the probability that that ratio where they where they decide who wins or who loses but sometimes the coexistence of of individuals so not necessarily joining or dying but rather an intermediate stage where they both just they exist but they don't exert any Any pressure on either side um, could be better simulated through something like behavior or some form of phenotypic plasticity, perhaps even speciation, if that itself. I mean, I I think the idea is that this should represent speciation in itself as a model, but I was thinking maybe even something like a geographic barrier, which actually then, then made me wonder and what, what are your thoughts on using this abiotic factor as a living organism, as opposed to what we can usually consider, you know, we don't look at necessarily soil um, or the sun as, as something alive. We see it as, you know, or as, as a source of energy or something that, that, that breaks down things. And we see it as just this kind of entity separate from what we are. So what are your, what are your thoughts on this idea of using the non-living environment as a living organism and, and, you know, do you, how do you think that we as scientists, as biologists, can actually incorporate this this principle into our own research?
1: Because it's really interesting. I had trouble as well understanding the concept of using the environment as a living organ organism. But at the same time, like for the sake of the of the model itself, for the sake of the software, would it be possible to not have it this way? But like that's interesting because. It does raise raise a few questions on how we could observe the environment as an active component of the ecosystem, <laughs> which is the case. You no, know? it's active, but we just decide to 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 pull all the abiotic factors into like something that's not living, but it is actually something that uh, is dynamic, changes with time, and has definitely an effect on the biotic system. So uh, that's a very interesting way to put it in the in the paper. Now, what do I th- think of that um quickly like that I, I i do think that it would be interesting to to you know not give all the characteristics um that we give to biotic systems to the environment but at the same time being aware that since it's a dynamic system and it it will it change through time will also induce changes in the living part of the of the ecosystem um yeah it's, i think it's a really in- important way to um yeah and i think yeah they will find that they expressed it this way with a very simple two-dimensional model just opens our eyes on maybe a different way of observing our own research
2: yeah i i I think it's a cool idea i'm i'm not sure if it could be applied now though because if you think of it this sort of abiotic component uh, it makes sense in an environment where we don't have organisms that are constantly looking for you know food sources right now uh, the microbial community of Earth is insane. It's massive. Um, as soon as something starts to, well, I mean, I, I don't even know if it could start to, but for something to start gaining organizational complexity, it, it means it has to be absent in in almost a an aseptic environment where it's it doesn't have this competition. So I think right now there's so much top-down control that looking at this sort of abiotic structuring, I don't know that it could ever ever really happen now um i don't know does that make sense
0: but i'd be interesting especially looking at at well i mean your work with with the plant microbiome i mean if we're looking at at plants which many people unfortunately don't even see as alive which is another issue but that's, that's a later episode <laughs> um but uh, you know plants within themselves let's assume a single tree it 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 emerges from the region that it's in, but it also then dies in the same region that it, that it you know, the, the, the organism itself doesn't necessarily leave the area. And so one could think the nutrients itself that, that, that is in that tree returns to the same geographical location in which it, it came forth. Um, so can that tree not be seen as part of the abiotic environment? I mean, we're seeing it, we, we call it living and we know it's it's a living organism. It has charitability. And so if we ignore those, that side of it, we look at it simply as a source of energy or rather as a temporary storage of energy. Um, can we, can we not look at, at the soil and the tree as having equal importance within the system, especially on these smaller scales?
2: Yeah, I, well, for sure. But um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess it's just sort of a semantics kind of thing. It's, you know we we create these distinctions but it's still made out of the same material at the end of the day um yeah I, I mean i guess we we just do this for for our own use right to make things simpler um but yeah no i i see your point
1: um it's so like in that case yeah you would see the tree the living tree as one of these creatures and then as it dies the environment takes over and whatever sediments are left from the tree would be part of the environment, if we tested yeah, it back to the system
2: I guess I, I'm just not seeing the value in looking at it this way, so um, like like how how could we like apply this kind of principle to something that that could offer value you know
0: I would imagine in in, in ideas surrounding conservation, where we're looking at how you know when we're, rather when we're deciding. On what deserves to be protected and what deserves to be to use in a sustainable manner and and ultimately at the same time unfortunately that's that same decision is a decision as to what we don't mind going extinct you know what what species are not worth the financial cost um to keep to keep alive and you know this—that's the, the kind of part that we don't like to talk about necessarily in conservation. But that is that is a, a reality of the world we live in. You know, if we can't keep everything alive, well, somewhere along the line, we have to make the decision of what we let go. And so, when we when we look at the world in that that sense, when we look at it as if the Earth itself is a living organism, you know, not just not just a you know a source kind of of not not just not just you know the as a separate entity from ourselves and and the, the what we call biodiversity and and wildlife and and the flora and the fauna of this planet but really as all of it being part of a unified system when we start looking at it from a conservation angle i think we would start to change the way we approach some of our initiatives you know instead of looking at necessarily specific wildlife conservation or even biodiversity conservation, from the from the perspective of populations, um, we might start looking at it from you know more more. I mean, an ecosystem approach, you know, as you know, what's really being pushed by the by by the UN's um, UN's initiatives right now. But by looking at it as as a living organism, just as 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 important to preserve as let's say. You know a panda bear or something and and likewise but it might, it might also help us kind of reconcile the fact that we can't save everything and that ultimately things will go extinct things will disappear from this planet but in a sense they haven't completely disappeared either
1: mm, i
2: i mean i think i think that that kind of reasoning it's kind of it's you're really ignoring a lot of the the complexity that's associated with the interactions that are holding these ecosystems together. So, you know, trophic levels, you remove a species, you can throw out, you can create a trophic cascade and destabilize everything in that environment. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, think, I think it's just overly, overly simplistic. We have to look at this level of complexity that's, you know, generated over these millions of years. And if we just look at it in this way, it's we're kind of missing a lot of the picture.
1: Do we think that, um, well, we won't be talking about removing species because it's more so um, letting species go versus actively trying to conserve that species or conserve the biodiversity in general. Um, This is, we're looking at the oversimplified model here, Um, but that could also, like, change our perspective on, on how we, like, you know, approach these conservation initiatives, as Arun was saying. But my question is now, now, how like how do we know that that um like accepting that a species will go extinct will eventually cause more damage to the ecosystem versus maybe that the removal or the the disappearance of that species will actually be something more beneficial for the ecosystem? Maybe that's a way for the ecosystem to, for the ecosystem to respond to the changes through time caused by humans, as an example. So I understand what you're saying, Kyle. That you know it's oversimplified it's kind of hard to, to know if maybe that's going to cause a trophic uh, cascade but it could go the other way as well maybe the ecosystem is its its way of coping is by removing species to allow to to prevent all of the other species from going extinct at the same time
0: yep it's that 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 maintenance of balance and and I and I agree with with you with you Charlie and and in fact actually the you know you use the word time and I think this is where a lot of these things start to become you know harder question, questions to answer because on what time scale are we looking at certainly you know looking at species today and, and watching them go extinct i mean that's a time scale that we can actually understand you know unfortunately that's that's the era we live in now where we can we are living where within our lifetime species are going extinct so it's something that is now happening on on our time scale i mean pe- things have been going extinct know since life was formed but what wasn't happening you know was the speed or the rate at which they were going extinct um but perhaps that's that's part of it and as you mentioned mentioned charlie the this is the way of you know the ecosystem coping and 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 kind of shifting the balance ultimately it's it's a balance of energy and so this this higher complexity that we're seeing in the form of the life forms that we see around us perhaps they're just these temporary structures but as a whole the energy hasn't changed the energy still re- remains within the earth and it might take you know billions of years again for for life to emerge but and and it and it would it would emerge in a completely different fashion than what we've seen today you know we might not necessarily see the same types of creatures um if we lose the genetic diversity but the energy is still present and if we look at the earth as a living organism well in itself it hasn't changed it just the way that it's ordered its structures has changed. It's almost like a, you know, like a big glob of clay. And and so out of this clay comes new forms. But at the end of the day, this, these forms can still be put right back into the big, same big ball from which it came. And the ball has, itself has never changed.
2: So so I get what you guys are saying. I think the problem is that we are dealing with a timescale where we don't have the luxury of looking at this this big experiment. The thing is, if we allow the complexity that's here to, you know, go extinct or just, you know, have humans wipe out half of it because that's what's going to happen anyways without trying to prevent it. The thing is, like I, I think we talked about this before, we're completely reliant on ecosystems. So we can't afford to allow ecosystems to just completely collapse. Um, if you're looking at it from an, an anthropocentric view, it is really important to conserve biodiversity. I don't think I mean, what you're saying can be completely true, but from our perspective, I think conservation is important, and leaving these ecosystems to, you know, do what they will, we have enough data to know that in a lot of cases, they just become completely destroyed and they don't function properly anymore, and and that's important. So we need to preserve function, and that means intervention and preventing extinctions where we can.
0: So when we're when we're deciding there there's there's an interesting kind of um, there's an there's an interesting statement that these authors make when talking about living organisms and and I think this is something that comes up when we're deciding on these conservation measures because once again I mean I, I I agree we when it comes to the human angle I mean ultimately conservation is a human question. the earth itself doesn't necessarily care whether or not we you know act to preserve it or not because the earth is just what it is. It's the earth. Um, and, and from the earth will come new organisms long after we're all gone. The, the interesting thing though, is that it's very much a perspective, a human perspective. And so the authors say, and I'm going to, to, uh, to kind of quote them here. It's that they say that life likeness is something less measurable, something subjective, something that could be called biological beauty. It's a criterion that even a child could feel. Beings, both human and animal, assign living features to things living or not. Uh, the authors then go on to say that to appear living, systems may not be too simple and, in the same time, not too close to disorder nor too diverse. And that last little bit, that "nor too diverse," that kind of that that struck me as an interesting statement, because there's this idea of of balance in ecosystems. This, this natural. I mean, there's two major concepts here that, that I'd like to touch upon. It's, one, the idea of life as a subjective creation. It's something that we as humans can admire. And, and we say that something is living and something is, is non-living. That's a decision that we make. You know, there's no guarantee that a, that a squirrel might look at something and say this is alive and this is not. It might look at a rock and think that's alive just as much as you know, it thinks that you and I are alive. But... There's there's a certain biological beauty, as the authors mentioned, this aesthetic um, within these environments, and, and what we call is these higher order structure and this complexity that we ourselves we admire, we want to keep, that we don't want to see go from from that intrinsic value and, and aesthetic value point. But also then, as you mentioned, there's there's the ecosystems systems ecosystem services approach, and and how we as as humans um, rely on these systems to survive, and. So it's something I, I, I'd be curious to see, you know, especially coming from a conservation angle. What do you guys think about this idea that, well, if life itself is a, is a subjective measure and that it needs to be kept in balance, are we not the, the arbiters of, of this balance? Can we not make these decisions? And, and are as, as, as another animal within the system, is us letting species go extinct really just the ecosystem balancing itself through us?
1: I mean, I think that's what I was attempting to say a bit earlier that um, we are part of the ecosystem and trying to uh, conserve actively, actively like we're, like we're doing right now, it is the right thing to do to preserve what we have and preserve our quality of life. But from an entirely objective perspective, from an out-towards perspective where I, I'm not, like, just thinking about the earth, as you were saying as a living system, then we're comparing the two different uh simplified models that we've seen the basic game of life model versus the better you know or the um, the improved game of life model that we that we read about in this paper and then are we are we trying to dumb down that game of life model into something where we could have that stasis where like nothing goes extinct to keep that same illusion of balance? For lack of a better term. I don't know if I make if I'm making sense, but essentially like looking at the uh, at the paper, they're looking at extra parameters that are making the ecosystem dynamic as it is right now. But by wanting to conserve, if we could effectively preserve everything we want to preserve, would we just end up in the unreal unrealistic ecosystem where everything is in a stasis and some other sort of imbalance will happen just later on when there's too much happening at the same time.
2: Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that would be the case because we still have uh, natural disturbances occurring, right? I think the difference between natural disturbances and human-caused disturbances is just the magnitude. So it's the rate at which we're destroying the planet, or the rate at which we're causing these, these issues that we're looking at. So there's big. Big difference there, um I mean, yeah, I don't know what do you guys think of that
0: well, are we destroying the planet or are we just changing it?
2: Well, yeah, that's a good point
1: that's a yeah, that's a good point indeed, because yeah we and we cannot answer that question because we won't be here long enough to know the answer to that question, yeah, you know? mm-hmm. um, but like' it's, you know it's a matter of perspective, it's do we see ourselves in the system or we see ourselves out of the system having an impact on the system itself. You know, it's That's just more philosophical than anything else, you know, and I don't think there's any wrong or right answers in that case. It's just a matter of perspective. But I definitely understand from a conservation perspective why it is important to act and reduce our impact because the rate of change because of I mean, the rate of change because of anthropogenic disturbances is huge and species will not be able to adapt. The way they've been adapting the last few thousands of years, but then maybe that's just one big disturbance that is that that makes this era called the Anthropocene, you know
2: yeah and and I mean, we generally look at it as as a mass extinction event comparable to other past extinction events the only The only thing that's the problem, I guess, is whether we're going to make it through that extinction event or not. Biodiversity will will make it through, but will humans make it with them? That's with the rest of uh, species on Earth. Um, I guess that's that's more the the question.
0: So the the authors towards the the very end of their paper state that subjective evaluation of the living must be combined to with rather objective measurements to ensure the living nature of a system, and reciprocally. So in other in other words, this. This biological beauty, this aesthetic, this intrinsic—or not rather intrinsic—but this this value that we give to life and the, the the species that surround us has to be combined with you know what we might say normally call these ecosystem services—the the, the value, either economic value or survival value that these species have on us—in order to ensure that the system persists. Do you think that's that's true? I mean, I I, I struggle. I mean, of course you know if you'd ask me and and about this you know do i enjoy when i go hiking you know if i'm going skiing if i'm going climbing if i'm going anywhere outside and i'm looking at you know, the the plant life i'm looking at the insects the fungi i mean anything that you find around whether it's in the desert or rainforest or temperate forest or, or even you know underwater i mean it's it's gorgeous right the the, the sheer colors the contrast the there's certain there's a, an artistic you know nature to nature <laughs> and that's something that that I think you know I would say I value on a personal level, and I'd imagine the two of you as well, especially given the field that we're in. But it's I feel like it's we're almost jumping the gun a little bit by by assuming that everyone must have the same valuation. So do you think that it's possible to sub, to add subjective evaluation to the of of nature around us to objective measurements like you no know, money that that corporations can understand? In order to ensure that the that the system continues that we we don't you know change or or possibly even destroy depending on the time scale the world around us and and if so, how do you think that would that would manifest
1: That was a tough question to be honest with you um I do not really know how to answer that,
2: yeah, if I could. you could
1: word it differently maybe but yeah, I understand what you're saying, but if, if you could word it differently maybe so it it would help me yeah.
2: I think uh, it's this is kind of what um, what you would refer to as just intrinsic value and in conservation, right? Or, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Not really sure.
1: How I mean, would do we, you like define intrinsic value and in conservation? Just means like the the reason behind it.
0: Well, the value that that exists. It, essentially, intrinsic value is saying that things exist, and rather deserve to exist for the simple fact that they are what they are. Okay. that they deserve to exist just you know a tree is a tree it's a unique thing and irregardless of our own value it deserves to exist but even that i have an issue with this idea of intrinsic value because intrinsic value is still dependent depend upon our own valuation of the system mm-hmm. the fact that we think that unique things deserve to live is in itself a value that we're placing on the on the organism, right? Or whatever system we're looking at. You know, we like unique things. Therefore, that thing is unique, so it deserves to live for the sake of itself. But there's nothing actually governing the world saying that unique things must survive. In fact, I would argue the complete opposite is taking place. You know, the number of unique things that have gone extinct over geological history um, and evolutionary time is much, much larger than the number of unique things that exist today. Um, so, in fact, if you were to really zoom out and look at the world and, and and all of time on a on a much wider scale, we could say that, in fact, unique things are not, you know, the thing that they they don't have a value. No.
1: Um, They're meant to disappear. They That's are meant to time disappear. Time. <laughs> <laughs> so dark. <laughs> I mean, it is so dark. I, I think we we just, you know, as as biologists, we just accept that you know as lots of people will find value in unique things we start like we learn to how to find value in in larger things you know that are you no know, happening on longer larger time scales than we can even perceive we understand that like we again we live in a dynamic world some things are meant to appear and disappear you know that's all about evolution and that's just part of the process so again like for me it would be ridiculous to just think about preserving what we see now because that's just a tiny subset of what's i actually been out there you know mm-hmm. and i think i would try to preserve if possible i would try to preserve the mechanisms behind it rather than the actual outcome you know
2: mm. yeah but i, I mean that the mechanisms are intrinsic right so it's you you wouldn't need to preserve like I don't i don't yeah, like I don't know how you could preserve natural selection, for example, because it's... I don't think you a,
1: have to preserve it, you know, it's yeah, like right. these things that we, of course, we want to preserve our own species, we want to live for as long as we can, but these mechanisms are always acting on us, you know, we're part of the system, so whatever we're doing, they're still acting, and they'll just be acting at different intensities depending on the pressure that we are, that is caused by the the components of no, it's like if we go back to that super simple model that they've uh, created in the paper, the bigger that that com- that let's say um, amount of pixels get, the, the more chances it has to colliding f- in, with something else, and then of all of it disappearing. Yeah. So the system doesn't change, but it's just the components that will change because of of their proliferation of their of their growth. So. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah for sure dark ID is interesting ideas. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, at the same time, you know, one could flip this on its head and look at, again, if we look at these much larger time scales, kind of coming back to, to where we started with our discussion, you know, if we were to incorporate every single, um, every single facet of life, every mechanism, assuming we knew every mechanism that existed out there, assuming that we could identify every interaction that existed out there, if we were able to model all of it with 100% accuracy, right? And this is the goal. This is what we're trying to do with these models. And we were to incorporate that into our model so that we can predict. It's our grand unifying theory. It's our way to say that this is what will happen if this and this and this line up. I sometimes wonder if we were to finally build this perfect model, will we even get life in the first place? What is the probability that life itself could exist under these exact conditions? What is the probability? You know, we set this, this game of life model so that we always get life to start, right? And yet we see in, the, in, in Conway's game version, the original game of life, we see that everything goes extinct. You know, things disappear. And one has to wonder, if we were to incorporate every single aspect, everything that is possible on this planet, what is the actual probability that life could exist here in the first place? What is the probability that life could exist in this galaxy, in this universe, or at this exact point in time in history along this dimension, both spatially and temporally and possibly any other dimensions we haven't named yet. So when we, when we make this model, how many iterations do you think it would take before we actually got life to, to emerge? Do you, do we think that it's something that would happen no matter what, you know, something that, that, If we do scale out that we will see life on Mars and we will see life on Venus and Mercury and Pluto and and still unnamed planets and enter our solar system and, and asteroids that collide and form new planets, you know, billions and trillions of years in the future. Can we or rather will we see life there as well? Or is it just a fluke? Are we are we if we ran that model, will we be running it until we as a species go extinct, waiting for life to reform and for this computer to finally say, you know what? Hey, we got life. It formed and persisted. You know, maybe that itself is a reason to 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 preserve what we have, because sure, whether we exist or not, at the end of the day, it might not matter. You know, this is all from our perspective. It's all the values that we give to life around us, and 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 what we study. You know, whether we looking, we're we're spending days and weeks and months on end looking at a single individual leaf for hours at a time, or you know, we're we're going shopping for <laughs> groceries or, or we're, you know, in another in another place where we're digging for our food or, or building communities and and, and reconstructing and, and, you know, fighting wars and rebuilding after wars. You know, all of this that exists because it just exists. And so possibly the only reason that really matters in all of this as to why we should preserve this is because there will be no other option. I mean, this is this might be it. This is this is kind of what we call Spaceship Earth right you know in a very empty empty universe and if we don't well we were a little blip that that appeared and and assuming one day someday someone some other species we're studying they, they themselves might feel just as alone as we do in the universe because they might never know that this existed in the first place
2: yeah i think the the probability of life originating is probably extremely extremely improbable um and we can see that just looking at you know um what what uh, planets we do know um and and the kind of conditions that are needed but again i guess there's some discussion on whether those conditions would be the same across planets um but you're bringing up an interesting point because i think as improbable as it is once it arises i think the the ability for it to persist is extremely extremely high um like think about trying to eradicate every single living thing on earth it's almost impossible just given the uh microbial world um something will survive and and it has that um it has that intrinsic ability to replicate and um increase in complexity just like every other living thing on earth so i i think yeah uh, really improbable that um life will will begin but once it begins i think uh its persistence is um it's hard to get rid of
1: now the question is on other planets that we know of do you think life could be emerging and just not have the the ability to persist like it does on this planet No, on on planet earth maybe it's a matter of a different life form as well maybe it's a life form that cannot be observable or measurable and does not have the ability to persist within, like, in from our perspective, you know, it's it's interesting because like Earth, like we we, we have a that own we have a concept of life how it's working from small cells that will you know uh, replicate and then become multicellular organisms that increase in complexity. But maybe there's life elsewhere that just is persisting or does not have the ability to persist, but keeps on appearing. Um generation after generation it just doesn't have the ability to persist or to develop as it has on this planet
2: right or or persists in a certain um sort of lifestyle, so maybe there's physical or chemical conditions um that are sort of limitations that prevent increasing complexity beyond a certain point that right. you know we don't have on on earth or at least that are different on earth exactly
1: i mean water has in theory originated from you know the bottom of the ocean on planet earth and then have we explored to that extent on other planets so like again lots of uh, hypothetical things here but it would be very easy to say that there's as much possibility of life emerging somewhere else uh, on some other planet that has water as an example
2: yeah for sure and it i mean even on earth we see that Anywhere where there is this input of energy life does persist right so thinking right. of uh, hydrothermal vents for example um, exactly. yeah there's probably multiple ways it can happen it's just the conditions uh, the conditions differ right
0: I mean we, we see in certain moons around Saturn like Europa and we see planets outside our solar system and actually even Mars and and I believe our own moon they, they do. Can contain water we see you know there's this this idea of these vast oceans i mean there are these vast frozen oceans and and a flowing ocean below the ice on 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 the moon it's so at jupiter's or saturn's moon europa and there's this hypothesis of life existing under there and and we don't know what it would look like and i think when we start asking these questions we we really i mean we're at the end of the day we're asking the same question that we here are asking is know is life unique are we the only ones and and if so if if that makes us special and perhaps that is what we're going to find out that that we are special or maybe not maybe there is a neighbor (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, hopefully it's a a happy neighbor not an angry neighbor but we're also assuming the neighbor even knows that we're we're existing and that it's sentient and and able to say hello because realistically our neighbor if it is there, is well we do have neighbors microbial neighbors presumably but um we don't really know if if, um, if any of them will actually be, like you said, measurable, quantifiable. And so, I mean, we're we're wrapping up just uh, just outside the hour here. So I don't know if there's anything you guys wanted to to add about this paper or about the origin of life. We went to some pretty deep topics here, from biological beauty to to life on on other planets and and within our solar system, on whether or not life is worth preserving, um, and and also just the idea that um that that there's a there's many different ways to simulate life you know in a computer but computer but there's a good chance that in a in a perfect world that simulation would would give us nothing (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so is there anything else you guys wanted to discuss or bring up that any any interesting insights or thoughts about this paper before we wrap up
1: no despite this paper being you know overly simple to describe the like ecosystem dynamics i think it's always very interesting to have a simplified perspective just to understand like you know to to put things in perspective and not to be not to repeat myself but not to be able to see like from what with the conservation example we mentioned earlier um to to see like how how important it would be to to have these conservation initiatives and what is the, the purpose of these initiatives in the big picture you know, and having like these like thirty thousand or how many I don't know iterations in that model can make us understand a bit more like what the true impact of our conservation initiatives could potentially have if it will have any impact. So it's always I think it's, it's always interesting to to be able to see things in the perspective and you know through time and see how how dynamic environment would function you know before and after humans you know and how big of an impact our initiatives will actually have on the whole grand scheme of things
0: this idea of the grand scheme of things and and looking beyond humanity you know beyond beyond earth and the 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 idea of conservation while it's very much grounded upon what we what we know and what we see in front of us i think it's something that's going to come up in the future you know when or if we find life on another planet or another moon another solar system or galaxy and if we come into contact with them because i think the interesting thing to look at is that we ourselves as a living form we're leaving our planet we're leaving know we have traces of ourselves far beyond you know the, the the corners of our of what we consider our our neighborhood in the galaxy and and on these things presumably there's forms of life i mean we try to keep it septic but we might be putting there might be still microbes surviving And we try our best, but we know all it might take is a single bacteria, or rather, more likely a single archaea, to sit on on one of our, our ships, and we've essentially introduced life into another planet. And so when we're looking at the grand scheme of things, these larger questions, there's a very real possibility that... In, in billions of years from now, there will be life on, on other parts of our solar system, our galaxy, in other parts of, of the universe that have originated from right here on Earth. Because like you mentioned earlier, Kyle, there's once life exists, once it, once it comes about, it's very, very difficult. It's impossible to eradicate. It's always going to continue continue onward. And if we come into contact with another life form within our lifetime uh, as a species, we're going to have to ask ourselves, does that does that species deserve to exist? Does, and and I'm sure if, if that organism is in itself just as, as sentient as we are, it's going to ask the same questions about us. Or do we as humans deserve to exist? And these much larger questions are going to come into play because no matter what we do, we will always have an effect on our environment, whether that's in our own backyards, within our houses, on our planet or around our solar system. And that's that issue of conservation given that we survive long enough as a species to 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 get out to these corners of a, of of the the, the universe we're going to have to ask ourselves what is our impact on these on that grand scheme and just to kind of finish up with uh with a quote from which is what is probably my my all-time favorite movie and i'm sure you guys have have seen it and enjoyed it just as much as i have but as, as Dr. Ian Malcolm in Jurassic Park, as Jeff Goldblum's character says, life always finds a way.